I'm not sure you noticed that last song. That's new to most every single one of you, I imagine. We, in the early days of Rock Valley Bible Church, we sang that uh, a lot. It's one of my favorite songs um, about just God's, God's saving plan for us. That's really what our text is about, Romans 8, uh, 29, and 30. Before we get into the text, though, I just want to say that we do have small groups tonight. Small groups are typically on the second and fourth Sunday uh, evenings. Um, and so we got one at our house. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> we're going to change to 5.30 tonight. That's a heads up to all you guys who were there. Steffi has a show, and so we need to start at 5.30. We have another one at the Browns house. And another one, I assume, you can just see. If you're ever north of Roscoe area, uh, there's a small group tonight, 5 o'clock uh, up there as well. You can just kind of ask around and you kind of figure out where that is. Next Sunday, just want to alert you that we're going to have, as we have from time to time, a uh, special Thanksgiving service. Um, I'm not planning to preach more than maybe a small meditation. So it'll be an opportunity for you to come and um, uh, just bring testimonies of thanks Testimonies of praise to God. It's a great opportunity. So you can just even be thinking now about how you want to honor the Lord by giving Him a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. So we'll spend some time praying. We'll spend some time uh, praising just in warm-up to thanksgiving that we're going to face that week. Uh, well, I, I was talking with a friend of mine this week who I don't know really well, but uh, he's a Christian. He goes to a church in town. Um, uh, he doesn't know me very well, but he knows I'm a pastor and uh, he, he asked me this week, he said, so what are you preaching on now? You got some sort of series you're, you're working through? And so I said, uh, yeah, I'm preaching through the book of Romans. And he said, oh, like what, like six weeks or eight weeks or something like that? And I said, uh, no, maybe two years or so. And I kind of saw his, his draw drop a little bit, dumbfounded. I don't think he ever experienced anything like that before. But I just explained that we just worked through the Bible preaching passage by passage, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph until we get to the end, and how good it is for all of us to understand the Bible better, to get a, a grasp of a single book like the uh, Epistle of the Romans, right? That the passion of our heart would be eager to preach the gospel that we hear over and over again, and how it helps to equip you to study the Bible, as you see, just modeled week in, week out of how to handle the scriptures. And, and one of the things I told him was that, uh, you know, uh, people don't ever complain against me or accuse me of preaching my own agenda. Uh, I, I said, for instance, right, we were a couple months in sin as Paul was talking through sin for Romans 1 through 3, we're a couple chapters, and none of you came up upset at me because I'm talking too much about sin. Because that's what the text is about. And uh, so you all just understand how, how just uh, powerful that is. And today we come to one of those passages that some people might say, oh, you just want to preach your agenda today. Well, I'm not. It's Romans chapter 8. My title of my message this morning is The Unbreakable Chain of Salvation. It, it, this text does come with some controversy. Um, just to let you know, there's some people, it's, it's debated in uh, Christian circles, in philosophical circles, when you start talking about uh, predestination, you start talking about election. Um, but these topics, predestination, election, sovereignty, they're, they're key and crucial to understanding Romans 8. How can you be secure in salvation unless our salvation is entirely in God's hands? And so Romans 8 is about, right, you're going to preach the gospel, we've talked about sin, Romans 3, salvation 3-5, through five, sanctification 6-7, security. How can you be secure in your salvation apart from a sovereign God who keeps you secure? 
The question isn't whether you can lose your salvation. The, whether, the question is whether God can lose a Christian. And he can't because our salvation is secure in the hand of God. We will see chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, uh, just God's sovereignty. I mean, if Romans 9 teaches of anything, it teaches this, is that God is the potter and we are the clay. We need to submit our lives, our heart, mind, emotions, will, everything to the Lord, to a sovereign rule over us. We sang it today. He is sovereign over us. That means sovereign over everything about us. But, but our passage today, Romans 8, 29 to 30, there are people who balk at it. And so I had, as I have had conversations with people over the years, uh, just people balk at this, and, and I, don't, I don't quite understand. Um, but when people hear the extent to which the Bible talks about his involvement in our lives and talks about predestination, people resist and argue against that. And I think a lot of it has to do not with the clarity of the passage, because Romans 8 and 9 is clear as a bell. It doesn't have anything to do with the clarity of the passage. It has to do with faith, whether people are really going to believe what Romans 8 and 9 teach or whether, whether not. And sometimes it just, the, the, the God that's presented in Romans 8 and 9 is a God that, that people don't want or doesn't fit with their understanding of God. And so they'll go with their understanding rather than what the clear text of Scripture says. So I'm just encouraging you today just to, to believe and trust these passages because if you do, they can give you great joy. I was talking this week with a, a guy about our text this morning and, and tears of joy were welling up in his eyes just realizing just how, how God is in control of his salvation and how precious God's saving plan is to his life. And, and I just say this as well. If you embrace these things, you can tear up this morning in joy as well. Right? When, when you embrace these truths and just understand God's gracious work in your life and his sovereign, secure work in your life, you, you can go away from this place with great, great joy. How marvelous, how wise, how great, how infinite to contemplate. That's what James Montgomery wrote. How marvelous, how wise, how great, how infinite to contemplate Jehovah's saving plan. Here's the plan. He saw me in my lost estate, yet purposed to regenerate this faithless, fallen man. And it is marvelous and great to contemplate those truths. For known before the world began, according to God's gracious plan, he destined I must be conformed to Jesus Christ, the man who lived and loved as no man can. A glorious decree from before time decreeing that we would be conformed to his image. And of course, in time, he bore my sin on Calvary's tree and righteousness bestowed on me that I might see his face. He justified me, set me free, and glorified I soon will be. How marvelous this grace. And then our response, what have I now but to embrace the God who saved me from disgrace and praise him evermore. And with contentment run my race, my eyes fixed ever on his face to praise him and adore really the, the fruit of Romans 8, 29 through 30. James Montgomery Boyce wrote that hymn shortly before he died. I forget when he died, maybe 2003, 2002. The title of my message this morning is Unbreakable Chain of Salvation. If you haven't done so already, open your Bibles there to Romans 8. Maybe your Bibles at some point start, start just dropping. I'm turning my page from Romans 8 to Romans 9, so it'll start dropping on, on another page. But if you don't have a Bible, 
Page 944 in the pew is going to get you there. Now, before I read the text, I really want to illustrate it, okay, just to, to put it before you. So I want to pull my pulpit back here. And I'm looking for two little girls. I need two girls to come. Okay, here, look out. Need back in here. I got my... I want two girls to come. Maddie, I saw your hand. You can come. Who's, is there another little girl who'd like to come? Would you like to come on up? Come on up, come on up, yep. Maddie, you coming? Okay, I, I want you, your name again. I know your name. Lauren, that's right. I was Annika or Lauren, I didn't know. So, Lauren, why don't you stand here? Okay, what I have here is I have a, let's see, it's going to, it's going to, some of the tape got messed up. Okay, so I've got here a chain. It was a chain. It's kind of, kind of messy. Whoa, it's breaking apart. Wait a minute, here. <clears throat> it's a mess. Help me here, Vaughn. This is, um, this is the weakness of this illustration right here. <clears throat> okay, there we go. All right. So, Lauren, I want you to hold this, Oop, and it's upside down for, yeah, I want to hold it just like this. And we have a link here that says, what's this word say? For new, and this one here says what? Predestined, and this one says called, and this one says justified, and this one says, says glorified. There is our text. It's the unbreakable chain of salvation but you've seen it's very breakable, right? So, so that's, that's not so good, but that's pretty, right? I'm just going to put that in your mind. Okay, so, so thank you, girls. I need now some strong, strong boys, all right? So two boys thinking, thinking they're strong. Okay, Owen, how about, how about you come? And Michael, how about you come? Okay. Okay, so this is maybe a little better illustration. Okay, why don't you guys come on up here, Okay. Yeah, here's a, here's a little better illustration. Um, I got a chain here, and this isn't unbreakable, but it's kind of small. Um, can you read what's on there? Foreknown, and what's the next one? Predestined and called and justified and glorified. Okay, so Owen, I want you over here, okay? So this, you can't see, that's the weakness of this illustration, but it's pretty strong. Here, I want you to take one with one finger, and I want you guys to try to break it, okay? Pull really hard, guys. Careful you don't fall off. Pull really hard. Can you break it? Okay, all right. Thank you. Thank you. They can't break it. I think the girls could have broken their chain, but you guys can't, can't break your chain. So this it is. Here it is right here. This is the unbreakable chain of salvation. Romans 8, 29 to 30 is, is really what it is. Um, <clears throat> the boys can't pull it apart, and neither can we, because it's an unbreakable chain of salvation. Put this over here. Well, here's our text. Here's our text. I just want to read it for you this morning. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he 
called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And I trust you can see why I call these verses a chain. Because Paul begins here by mentioning foreknown. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. There, there are two links on a chain. And, and, and then he goes on to talk about those who he predestined the second chain, he called the third chain. And if you go on further, it says, those whom he called, he justified. There's the, there's the fourth chain, the third and fourth chain link. And then he finishes up, by those he justified, he also glorified. So you got these, these chains there, the foreknown, and the predestined, and the called, and the justified, and the glorified. Boy, I got a, I got a, a brighter red there so you can see it. But, but, but there they are. And these, these chains are, are formed together, and, and they are what I call unbreakable. Meaning that, that once you start on the one side of foreknown, you will reach the other side of glory. There's no, there's no breaking that chain. And, and the reason why I titled this unbreakable is, is because of the text, but also because of the context of Romans 8. It's entitled security. In Romans 8, verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. There's no possibility of, con- of condemnation. You have been judged and you've been declared innocent by the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in Him. And then verses 38 and 39 is how it ends. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you're in Christ Jesus and you're believing Him and trusting Him, you, you have no fear of ever being separated from the love of God in Christ. You're secure in His love. And this morning, we're going to look and see how we are secure in our, our salvation through this unbreakable chain that, that begins in eternity past and goes to eternity future guaranteed throughout all future in fact this text here is the basis of our text last week last week we looked at verse 28 and we know that for those who love god all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose and he's going to talk about what his purpose is and here's his purpose from from time before he 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 foreknows and he predestines and he calls and he justifies and he glorifies and because god is so sovereign in control that's how we can say that all things work together for good for those who love god and who are called according to his purpose and those right there who are called are in this chain and this is how it all works out and 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 i get that because verse 29 starts with the word for which means because so all things work together for good for those who love god and called according to his purpose because those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And we know that God's plans cannot be thwarted. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Job 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Right? God's purposes cannot be thwarted. This chain cannot be broken. Well, let's dig into our text this morning. You simply have, have two verses, two, two points, because they flow right out of it. The first one is the, the purpose of salvation. This comes to the last half there of verse 29. Let me just read 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. We'll get to that link. But here it is. He predestined to what? He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, God's purpose for our life, the purpose of salvation, is our sanctification. 
That's what it means to be conformed to the image of His Son. It means to be like Jesus. It means that we'll represent Him in, in every way. It means that we will act like Jesus. We will think like Jesus. We will be like Jesus. Now, the problem with all of us is that we're not conformed to Jesus. Right? We're not like Jesus. We are, we are sinful. Adam was created in the image of God, sinless. But when he sinned, he damaged the image of God in himself and in all of creation because he no longer is an adequate representation of God and that must be restored. And that's done through our salvation, through Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins, that by faith in him, we can be justified and be made righteous. Ultimately, right, that culminates in the glory of Christ. And in fact, it culminates in our glory. That's how verse 30 ends, right? That he also, these should be justified, he also glorified. Right? So when you're, when you're called and when the purpose of your salvation is ultimate glorification, being conformed to the image of his son. And if we read also kind of another purpose is that is that on that day, we will be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus will be the firstborn among many brothers. That's what verse 29 says. We're conformed to the image of his son in order that he might become the firstborn among many brothers. That is heaven is filled with brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus himself being the firstborn. Firstborn doesn't mean firstborn in time. It means firstborn in stature. It means the, the, the head, the one who gets twice the inheritance, dead. <clears throat> and uh, my father's here today. So, but that's what it means to be firstborn. Is it means you get double the inheritance. It, it means that you, you're the one who gets it. You're the, you're the preeminent one. And in scripture, it's not always the firstborn one. Because firstborn means preeminent, not the first uh, preeminent, not the firstborn in time. It means that Jesus here will take center stage. And that's why we are conformed into his image. So we can be in heaven. We can be among the many brethren where Jesus is the firstborn. When you read the scriptures, Revelation, you see that heaven is all about Jesus. Revelation 5, myriads of thousands of thousands of angels around the throne saying, Worthy is a lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus is the main act in heaven. In fact, all of creation, Revelation 5.13, as, as John was writing this, and he's seeing this vision, this was going on. He said, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever and ever. Just all of creation singing the praise of Jesus and of the Lord. But here it is. The creation extolling Jesus. And here in verse 29, we see Jesus gathering a crowd, making sure that he's got an audience. Look, look again, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, these many brothers had to be secured. Jesus had to secure this audience for him in heaven. And the sovereign plan of that is this chain. That he foreknows those who are going to be in the crowd. He foreknows those who are going to be there. And then he predestines them and he calls them and he justifies them and he glorifies them. And that's God's sovereign plan. They might be with Jesus as brothers and that Jesus might be exalted as the firstborn. Right? Because in order to be in God's presence, you need to be holy and pure. And that's why he does. He conforms us to the image of his son, right? ridding us of our sin through the sacrifice on the cross. And his ultimate purpose is then that we all are there to honor Jesus as our firstborn. So catch the big point. What's the purpose of our salvation? Not about us. That's the big idea. It's not about 
us. It's about God conforming us to the image of His Son so that we might be with His Son, so that we might be one of those brothers and sisters there so that Jesus could have first place in everything. We are just people in the crowd. And God's filling up the crowd through His sovereign plan, His chain of salvation. Yeah, I remember when I was small in the NIU Huskies in, in DeKalb, small, meaning eight years old, whatever, 10 years old, junior high, high school, and um, the Huskies were trying to fill their stadium. And so periodically, uh, people would come to our school with free tickets to the NIU football game because they were going to be on TV, and so they wanted you know, good showing on TV, so they got t- free tickets all around. And what the school was trying to do was ensure a big crowd. Well, that's exactly what God is doing. He's, he's giving out free tickets in the schools to say, kids, come free. Right? Come and be part of this throng that worships Jesus. But he doesn't just, he doesn't just do it or, or invite and just say, well, I hope you come. He brings them there. He determines that these are the people who are going to come. I'm going to fill these seats. It's going to be a done deal. I'm going to take place. Jesus told the story of a, a wedding feast. He said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. This is Matthew 22. He said, he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent out other servants tell, saying, tell those who are invited. See, I prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat cows have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to a farm, another to a business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. And the king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. That's a little bit like what, what God is doing. Right? The heaven is empty, and he's got to go out, and he gets his guests, and he brings them in. Now, from a human perspective, of course, the, the gospel is offered, and people turn it down and refuse it. I mean, it was really struck today, just even thinking about the people I've shared the gospel with, in, in recent days even, and just... Here's this free offer. It says, come, come, be part of the wedding feast. Come and, and understand his greatness of his grace. And people just turn it down and they turn it down and they turn it down. Because God didn't foreknow them. You see, when God foreknows, he predestines, he calls, and those people come and he brings them. But he's going to make sure that this wedding feast is filled up to all heaven. And Jesus is filling up his banquet hall, this wedding feast. And, and those who don't come are not worthy. But ultimately, we see here in our text right, that how it is that God fills up those seats and in some measure why they're not worthy is because of God's working in their life is, is lacking. Well, here's how he fills up, by the exertion of his sovereignty. We have seen the, the purpose of salvation. Now let's talk about the pipeline of salvation. Let's talk about these five terms. Now, um, you see, I, I've taken a change here from changing from, changing from the... The chain of salvation to uh, to a pipeline of salvation. Okay, so I've I've really I've really done this for a, a few reasons. Um, the top of which this starts with P and this starts with C, and so I needed a, a purpose. So this is a, a pipeline. All right, so that's that's probably a top top reason. But but there's also a, a second reason why I, I changed it to a, a pipeline. It's because it kind of gives you a different perspective of our text. It kind of gives you a movement. So you, you, got this, you got this chain that can flow through 
the pipeline. And that's what it does, right? You, you start on one side of the pipe and you flow through into the other side of the pipe. There, there's a flow, and, and that flow is, is talked about in, uh, in these verses. It goes from eternity past, right? Before time began, talking about God's foreknowledge and His predestinating, and it brings us all into the, the glory of the future. And so this is like a, a time thing that's going on. It's, a, it's a good for a, a flow. So that, that's, that's one reason. A, a third reason, though, is uh, to help show you that nothing gets lost. I mean, I showed you the chain was unbreakable, but a, but a pipeline, nothing gets lost. You, you know, in, in recent days, there's been the, um, the talk about the Keystone Pipeline, which would take crude oil from Canada down to the, the Gulf states. And, um, you know, the, the reason why there's been some resistance to that is because of leakage. Right? It, it, crude oil upon some key water aquifers is not a good thing. It's going to contaminate, it's going to pollute, it's going to be very bad. And so they, they want to protect against that. But, but God's pipeline, there is no leakage in God's pipeline. What starts, ends in the saving plan. So let's look at these. Let, let, let's begin here with the, the foreknowledge. Okay, here it is, the, the foreknowledge of God. So this speaks about the mind of God before the world began. That might blow your mind here a little bit, but we're talking about what God was thinking about before he created the world. Sometimes it's called a decree. It's what what God decreed would happen when the world was created. Now, now this is hard for us to, to think because before he created the world, there was no time. In fact, God is outside of time. He's theologians call the everlasting now. But here he was before time, thinking about the world and thinking about us and thinking about the redeemed and thinking about humanity and his son and how his son can get glory and praise for grace. He's thinking about the fall. And he's thinking about the redemption. And, and we know this because even Ephesians 1 says that um, before the foundation of the world, he chose us in him means that before the world began, he was thinking about us in Christ. That implies a fall. That implies a Messiah to come. That implies a Messiah coming to save. That implies all that stuff is being thought about in the, the mind of God. But here, just think about that. God knew you before you were born. God knew you before time began. That's what God told Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Jeremiah 1.5. And before you were born, I consecrated you and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Here's God, before Jeremiah was ever born, set apart to be a prophet. Determined that's what he's going to be. In fact, I would even argue, according to this verse in Ephesians 1, that 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 plan wasn't just, you know, whatever, nine months before his birth, but that plan was certainly before the world began, that he knew Jeremiah would be a prophet of his people, Israel. And what Paul is saying here in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, is that this is not unique to Jeremiah. God knowing Jeremiah, was not, that was not just a, a unique situation. Rather, it extends to all who trust in Christ. It extends to all who, just, who are justified by his blood. It extends to all who are predestined and called and justified and glorified. That before time began, God was on, we were on God's mind he knew all about our salvation before he created the world. That's what it says. 
Now, there's some who take this word foreknow and, and, and argue, and, and they say um, that this refers to God's foreknowledge, right? He, he knows what we'll look like. He knows our skills and abilities. He knows what we'll choose, and he knows whether we will believe in Jesus or not. In fact, I, I've heard many of use this illustration, right? Rather than a, a pipe, this becomes a corridor. And uh, how many times, maybe you've heard this before, and I don't know why this term is used, but they say, no, what God did is he put on his time telescope, right? And he, he looked down there into the corridors of time, through the corridors of time, and he said, well, are they going to believe or not? I can know. See, because God can know, because he's got this great divine time telescope. That he can look, and he looks down the corridors of time to, to see. And that's what people say. That's, they say, no, that's, see, that's what they're talking about here, because they so want people to be the sole determiner about salvation. They're going to say that. And I just say this. For those who, who believe that, he's looking down the corridors of time, it proves too much. Because what is it about the future that God doesn't know? He knows everything. There's nothing he doesn't know about the future. David said this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Psalm 139, you, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all. See, God knows. Our days even says in Psalm 139 that you've ordained the days for me before there were even one of them. Just David, the intimate knowledge that God has of David. It's the intimate knowledge that God has of all of us. And see, God is massive and he knows all things. And so the problem is this. If he knows all, then all are foreknown and all are predestined and all are called and all are justified and all are glorified. Do you see the problem? You got everybody in heaven. Now, that'd be a wonderful thing, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there's a heaven and a hell and it's the few that are in the heaven and many refuse to believe and are in hell. And so if you say four, no, it just, it just proves too much. It, 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 just, it just proves too, too, too much. You can't, you can't have it that way. And so you say, well, what, is, what does four, no mean then? And I just say, just like firstborn doesn't mean the firstborn in time, but it means the preeminent one, who is often the firstborn in time, but primarily it refers to the preeminent one. Here, foreknown must mean something different than just the vast knowledge that God knows beforehand. And there are lots of clues in Scripture about what it means. Amos 3.2 is, is one of those places. Speaking of God's judgment to Israel, he says this, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. What a strange thing. He says to Amos, You only have I known among all the families. Does that mean that God was like Egypt? Who's Egypt? I don't know Egypt. Right? I, I, I don't know Greece. Greece? I don't know. But you're the only ones I know. Of course it doesn't mean that. God knows all the nations. But what it, it means that you only are the one with a, a relationship with me. You're the only one that I've loved. You're the only one that I've spoken of Israel with, with a, a relationship with me. And, and similar knowledge of, of no comes out of the, the mouth of Jesus. When people are coming to him saying, Lord, Lord, look at all these great things I did for you. He's going to say, depart from me. What? I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't know their name or what they did. In fact, he knows what they did. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. He knew that they worked lawlessness. He knew what they were doing. 
but he said he never knew. What's the idea there? The knowledge is like a relationship. I never had this relationship with you. There was never this love between us. You're a worker of iniquity. And when it comes to Romans 8.29, I think foreknown is, is best understood in that way, right? Those he foreloved, perhaps you might say it, or those who he loved beforehand, or those he knew intimately, those who he would relationship with in the future, or those he would choose beforehand. That's what it means. Uh, Genesis eighteen nineteen, talking about Abraham. I have known him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. I've known him so that he does this. And the ESV, it's interesting, at that point, translates it, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household to keep the ways of the Lord. Because the knowledge and the choosing are, are just are, are there, and that's what foreknowledge really is about. God determining beforehand that these are the ones I will love and I will have a relationship with. And that, by the way, is the glory of the text, right? That's why we can be secure in our salvation, because God has planned it out. That God has determined that he's, he will foreknow us, he foreknows us, and that he predestines us and calls us and justifies us and glorifies us. It's all in God's sovereign plan. That, that's the glory of the verse. This is what makes grace grace, that it's all of God. Anything, it, it's not grace if it's part of you. But since it's all of God, it is all grace, all before the world began. Consider Ephesians 1. Verses 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And you see a lot, of the, a lot of the things stirring there, right? Before the world began, he had choosing us and predestining us, which is our next word. We're going to get at that. But he, he predestined us, verse 5, to, for adoption to himself as sons. It's interesting also, he, he chose us, verse, chapter 1, verse 4, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Is it not what our text says? That we would be conformed to the image of his son? Right? He chose us unto holiness. He chose us that we would be holy and righteous. And, and then this theme about grace. Ephesians 1 says it's all to the praise of his glorious grace. That's what, what makes grace grace is the fact that it's not of us. But it's God before we've done anything good or bad. Just like we'll see in Romans chapter 9 of Jacob and Esau. Before they've done anything good or bad. So it's not based on works. So it's not based on foreknowledge. So it's based upon God is election, that election might stand firm. That's, that's what it says. And so Ephesians 1 uses this word predestined. In fact, it uses it uh, a couple times. We've been predestined us for adoption as sons, Ephesians 1.5. It says also Ephesians 1.11 that we've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is, I'm talking about the purpose of salvation. It's God's predestination. So let's talk about predestination. Right There we are. The second, the second one. Um, you know, I, I remember when someone came to our church and um, was kind of finding out about a doctrine and things like this. And uh, as a woman and, and she said, 
do you really believe all that predestination stuff? Like, like do you really believe that? And uh, my, my response whenever people start talking about this and like, is just to go straight to the Bible. I mean, I had a phone call recently, a couple weeks ago. Someone really interested in church, lived at the church. He said, but your, your doctrinal statement, just a little unclear. What do, what do you believe about, like, election and predestination? <laughs> like, I think, you know, I didn't tell him. I just said, no, it's very clear. The problem is that you're not believing what it, what it says. And I just quoted passage after passage after passage after passage. And he resisted it and hated it and hated it and said, no, there's no way I can go to that church. So, so... He said, do you really believe this? This gal came to our church. Do you really believe what, what it says about predestination? And so always, I just go back to the Bible. I said, well, I believe the Bible. You believe the Bible, right? Let's see what the Bible says. And I just took out some of these passages, like Ephesians 1 and Romans 8, and read them. Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And I think that's all she heard. And the, after that went, wah, 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 because her eyes got really big. And she said, predestined is in the Bible. I said, exactly. It was eye-opening to her. She didn't th- she, she'd been to other churches and heard all this bad stuff about predestination, denounced as bad and wicked and unbiblical. But it's a biblical word. It's a word for us to embrace and to cherish. And, and I just say this. If it's in the Bible, let's believe it. Right? And it couldn't be clearer than here in Romans 8 that the ones that God has... Chosen to know, foreknown, these are the ones he predestined. And these are the ones he called and justified and glorified. And and, and again, right? This is the glory of the passage. It doesn't depend upon us. This is the security, is that God is the one who initiates, and God is the one who conforms and brings us to himself, and God is the one who keeps us in his hand. It's not us. If it was up to us, we'd lose it. We're always losing things, right? Right? thankful for find my iphone i can find that bust that around the house wherever it is right i can find that i'm losing my glasses all the time but god never loses us because he's got us in his plan he plans it all out or the biblical word here he predestines and now this is where people balk okay people balk right here they don't like predestined they, they they think it feels like fatalism well i don't think i'm living in a fatalistic world I think my actions have consequences, and I think my actions, uh, I freely do all my actions, whether it's my sin or righteousness, I freely do those, I'm, I'm, but there's something else going on. Last week I showed you, right, here's, here's what's going on, but there's God's will that's going on above it and beyond it and over it. And people, when they, um, when they hear about this, they think about this, they balk and they say, no, 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 for God to condemn to hell it has to be their choice and their choice alone. I'm like, well, like people have chosen hell. They, they refuse Jesus. They refuse the offer of the gospel. There it is. But there's this other side to it that Romans 8 and 9 speak. So listen, do you turn over there. Look at Romans 9, uh, verse 18 through 21. This is where people, I, I'm telling you, they hate this. And it's so clear. So then God has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whoever he wills. In other words, right? It's God's hardening and showing mercy. We're, we're, we're subject to him. And as we get there, right? 
We're going to get to verse 19 and say, so I say, people read verse 18 and they say, no, they hate that. How does God, how does God then condemn anybody? How does God find fault? Because he's the one who determines mercy. And Paul asks that exact same question. You will say to me, why then does he find fault for who can resist his will? In other words, you understand, Paul, exactly that God is the one who shows his mercy and hardens, shows mercy on whom he will. And Paul's response is not this, but, well, see, you don't understand. Really, it is man's response. It really is all of them. And see, God just kind of lets them and just sees who he chooses, and they go, they go that way. Paul doesn't argue that way. Paul says, God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. He'll harden whom he has hardened. You say, where does he find fault? He says, shut up. That's what God says. Who are you, a man, verse 20, to answer back to God? Will the thing molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use? The clay doesn't say to the potter, you can't make me like that. I'm going to operate by my own rules, not your rules. No, 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 no. The pottery operates by God's rules, and the pottery is called to submit to God's rules. And there's a glory to that. And the glory is just the, the gospels come with grace, and he'll be merciful to anyone who cries out to God for mercy. His mercy extends far and wide. I mean, that's the point of Jesus' parable. Matthew 22, right? He's inviting all these people to come. They say, I don't want to come. I don't want to come. I don't want to come. So he says, okay, well, I'm going to pull these people who are going to come. They have opportunities to come, and they turn it down. But the way God has made it is it's ultimately up to him. And then he says this. Here's where he gets to grace. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called. In other words, right? Here are people who have spurned God, and God is ready to destroy them in a moment, but he doesn't because he's got these vessels of wrath, but he's also got these vessels of mercy. And he's waiting and patient on the mercy to come to him. And who are these mercy people? Verse 24, even us whom he has called. There's mercy and grace right there. His kindness has come to us. And we'll look at that in more detail when we get there. But enough to say this, right? That God is the potter and we are the clay. God has every right to do as he pleases. And we as puny men have no right to balk back at him. And if you're believing in Christ, you have every reason to worship God for his, his grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not there's all the works that no one can boast. See, our salvation is all of grace. And, and, and when, when Paul says this, he says, it's not of your own doing. Your faith is not of your own doing. God gives you the faith. So that you come when called. He grants repentance. Scripture speaks about that over and over again. And we have no reason to boast before the Lord about anything. I mean, this is the doctrine that utterly humbles. That there's no, re- there's no merit in me to stand right before God. It's all His grace. If you don't understand that, I don't think you understand grace. You don't understand grace. That's why we as a church, we want to enjoy his grace. This is cardinal to us, to enjoy this wonderful grace of God. Well, let's go on. We've seen 
foreknown, predestined, now we come to called. And I need to speed up here, and I, I will speed up, because called is a, is a word we've seen in Romans before, and, and this, is, this is the word that really refers to the summons. This is the call. Okay, this is, this is the, the, the call to come to faith. And, and this is what he's talking about when he, he brings a sinner to faith. God calls and they come. Um, and God's call is such a strong, authoritative, effectual call that when he calls, they actually come. In fact, you, you can see how often Paul refers to Christians as called. Um, look at Romans chapter 1, verse 6. After he does some introductory things, he says, uh, um, bringing about obedience to the faith among the nations, um, including you, Romans, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. There it is. God called you to belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. God has loved you. right? He's called you to be his saint. Or... or even you pick us up, like we saw that in Romans chapter 9 and verse 24. Even us whom he has called. The same, the same sort of thing. In fact, look at how he uses this word call in verse 25 and 26 of Romans 9. And those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And the very place where it said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. In fact, you might you might even say this: is the word "called" is claimed. I'm claiming you, is another way even to think about what's what's happening here, right? The effectual call that when it goes out, these he's working on, he's foreknown, he's predestined, he's called. These are the ones going to come because I'm claiming you, is what he is he is saying. And, and the truth of the matter is, Romans 10, uh, verse 9, says. Um, I don't know, verse 9, I think, uh, verse uh, 13. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. This calls from man's perspective. Right? If you call in the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. That's the promise of Scripture. But I'm saying that people won't come until God calls them. That's, that's how you balance these two things. That's how it works in the, in the glory of the security is Romans 11, verse 29. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When God calls someone, he's not going to retreat back. He's not going to retract. He's not going to say, oops, I made a mistake. It's fully there. Okay, we need to go on. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified. Um, we hardly need to talk about this word because he's already spoken so much about this word. Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5. In our prayer meeting this morning, a fighter verse this week. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. If someone gives you a gift, now in our society it might be because whatever, that you did something good to them and so they're kind of patting your back, they're giving to you. But the idea of a gift is totally undeserved, total grace, total given, and that's how we are, are justified. Paul talks in Romans 4 about how we're justified, right? When, when we believe in God, we trust in Him, God comes down with righteousness and thereby justifies us by faith alone. It's only His grace. And we are, chapter 5, verse 1, been justified by faith. And that brings us to peace with God. And this is what God does. He justifies us. He makes us right so we can stand in His presence. And finally, we come to the last word of our pipeline, of our chain, glorified. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also glorified, justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, the best thing about this verse is its tense. Did you catch the tense of this verb? What is it? What does that mean? It's past tense. It's like God has determined that our glorification is already accomplished. And it makes sense because this verse is kind of backing off, looking at time, before time began, in eternity past, of what he's deciding and decreeing, and in time, he's calling us and justifying us, and then afterwards, glorifying us. Paul doesn't say, and we will be glorified. He says, no, that we are glorified. You know, Jesus, this was the prayer that he prayed in the high priestly prayer, the glory that you have given me, O Lord, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. Just want to be with Jesus, want to be him in glory. And Jesus even says, I want them to come and be with me to see my glory. In Hebrews 2.10, it says that he is bringing many sons to glory. And this past tense only makes sense if you view things in the spectrum from from God looking before time about all this action of what he was going to do in these different chain links of our salvation. But he's going to glorify us. And that's the glory that awaits. And that's the glory that says in verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's this glory that's coming, that's going to be revealed, that's far better than the suffering in this present time. And Paul's going to go back into suffering. If you look in chapter 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul's talking about these things because these are realities for those in Rome. There's famine and there's nakedness, there's danger, there's sword. He's saying, no, 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 be secure in the unbreakable chain of salvation that is secure, that will keep you, that will sustain you. And I, just, I, just, I say this, learn it now before the trials come, because when the trials come, you're going to need this. See, there's a big difference between those who suffer through trials, having been convinced of God's sovereignty in their lives, and those who, who said, just happened to me, like, God, are you in control? But far better, if God is in control, it means that there's a purpose for these things at the end. It's all working together for good, and I know that God has foreknown me, and in time, he's called me. He's going to glorify me. There's a way that these truths will help you endure through the sufferings in a far greater way than those who don't embrace these truths. So embrace them today in a day when may, they may be found. This is security. This is all what Romans 8 is talking about. So let's pray. Oh, Father, I would pray, God, that we would embrace this unbreakable chain of salvation. God, that what you foreknew and predestined in time past is coming to fruition in time as we are called and justified by you and we can only wait for our future glorification god may we see that these things all are working together for good as we love you and as we are those who are called according to your purpose and your purpose is god for your glory to be all of us conformed to the image of your son around your throne brothers with christ exalting him as the firstborn Father, I pray, God, for perhaps the soul here this morning who is um, sitting with arms crossed and resisting this message. God, I, I pray that they would see this is what the text says. It's clearly what it is. Romans 9 says that, that by grace you would 
God, grant faith to believe these things. They are glorious things. They are life-changing things. I know how much they've changed my life. I remember when first encountering these things, hating it as well. And by your grace, being able to see scripture after scripture. God, so help us to see, open our eyes and help us to apply these truths when the, when the trials and the sufferings come. God, for your greater glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.